Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. It's nice to be here in the house of God, and I just want to welcome everyone. And those who are visiting us for the very first time, I see some new faces. It's such a joy to have everybody here today. And special welcome to our lost son of, uh, of uh, Burlington. Welcome back, uh, Daniel. It's such a joy to have you back. <laughs> Daniel, for most of you, he has been... Uh, He's one of, our, one of our children growing up at uh, Seekers and served in Seekers, and he was in Saskatchewan for a while, and the Lord has brought him back. Praise God for that. Really rejoicing. Well, church, we are on a tour, the Colossians, as I love to call it, and believe it or not, we are on the 14th day on our tour, and today we are going to look at three verses only, even though you heard the whole passage being read today from verses 5 to 5 to 11, we are going to read three verses only. And what I found was that this is full of substance, and we can't just brush through that. We cannot just run through this. So I've given the title, Kill Your Sin, or Kill It Before It Kills You. That's what I've given the title. And this is just a part one. So the next three Sundays, we are going to work through this. And my hope is that we'll be able to wrap up from 5 to 17. That was the task. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at the three verses. But let me give you the context. If you don't know the context, it's hard for you to understand. Now, Paul is writing to a church facing troubles from false teachers. And we know that. We have studied that very well. And the first two chapters, Paul warned the people to be aware of the heresy or the heretical teaching that were brought about. In chapters 1 and 2, he set the stage by showing how the teachings of Christ and Christ himself is superior to everything else in life. And in chapter 3, there's a transition to practical matters within the church. So it provides a guide on how to use freedom in Christ to stay above sin, and how to keep Christ first in everything that we do. So that is what Paul is talking about to the saints in Colossae. But before we dive into the text, I want to ask a few questions. I know it's summertime now, and I'm sure that we would love to be outdoors, most of you. Recently, a dear family invited uh, me and my family for a for a, for, a, for a barbecue session outside. I really enjoyed outside, just seated by the pool. I can't swim, so I didn't get into the pool, and the, it was raining on that day. But I enjoyed the home-cooked uh, burgers and, and sausages and various other things, and little John had a, had a great time. Because this is a season to enjoy outdoors, and because the, for the window of this time is restricted, as you know. Soon we are going to have the fall and winter, and, and we won't like it. So let me take you to some of these places now, and on some of the situations. And there's one question I want to ask you as you look at these pictures coming up. 
what would you do if you are exposed to these places or situations? So let's start with this. Now, what would you do if you are exposed to this uh, great swimming pool? I know that you're all longing and loving for this water and you want to jump in and I love that small hot pool or whatever that you call it by the side because I can't get into the other one, I don't know how to swim. Now, what would you do if you have a, a lakeside? You know, for recently we went to the Muskoka Bible Center and beautiful lakeside. You really want to get into the pool and move in. What would you do if you come to Sri Lanka and visit this particular beach? It's called the Pasikuda Beach. It's a beautiful beach. You really want to do what? Go into the water, right? You do. What would you do if you see this? This is a, a picture of the tsunami. Do you want to go into the water? Because if you really want, if you don't do anything about this, now the other beaches you can just sit down and just gaze at the beauty, but when the tsunami comes, if you don't do anything about this, this is how it will be. This is a true picture of one of the victims. So what should you do when tsunami comes? You run. That's what you do. All right, let's look at another picture here. Now, we, have, we had budgies in our house. I love budgies. For five years we had. You can tame them and train them, and, and they are so beautiful. And when you have budgies, you want to keep them in your hand and you play with them. How about this butterfly? You may not like the previous life or, or, the, or, or the early stage of butterfly, the caterpillars you don't like, but butterflies are very beautiful. You want to just see it and, and you want to enjoy that. But how about this? A killer bee. Do you want to hold on to that and enjoy that? Absolutely not. If you don't do anything about this, your legs or your arms will end up like this, even worse. What do you do? You kill it. You kill it. That's what you do. Church, believe it or not, this is the crux of the message we are looking at today and over the next three Sundays. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Run from tsunami before it kills you. He said, kill the killer bee or the mosquitoes before it kills you. That's what Paul is talking about. So you might wonder, Pastor, what is this tsunami Paul is talking about? What are the killer bees he is referring to? So let us dive into the passage today. My focus is going to be only verses 5 to 7. So let us look at the text, and I'm going to read, the passage has been read, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to start with the very first word, therefore. Word, therefore. So Paul begins this, this transition with the word, therefore, is referring to the truths in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It's a transition from theology to behavior, from doctrine to conduct. Now, in all the Pauline epistles, that's how you, what you see. There is always a doctrine and practice, and that is how he links them together. So, shifting from the list of heretical teaching to be aware of in chapter 2, Paul begins this chapter 3 with the uplifting theme which we studied last Sunday, that we must seek and set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where there are Life is now hidden with Christ in God. So after speaking of the doctrine, Paul spells out how their behavior 
should change. So in essence, what Paul is saying is that since believers share in Christ's death and resurrection and have lives hidden with Him and one day will be revealed in glory with Him, therefore, Paul says, you must kill sin. Therefore, kill sin. So as heavenly citizens, all of us believers, we need to cut ties with the sinful patterns of our former life. Church, note this, please. The study of theology, some of us love it, is not an academic exercise reserved for the specialist. Some of us love to boast about the knowledge we have about the scriptures. The sadly to many is just only a head knowledge. The sound theology is foundational to spiritual growth. And the transformation of the heart should be the outcome. If not, we can only be puffed up with pride. Just listen to this, a great saying from the modern day theologian. But woe to us if we do not allow the head knowledge to transform us into the image of Christ and change the way we live our lives. Let me repeat that. A great saying for you to memorize and keep it. But woe to us if we do not allow the head knowledge to transform us into the image of Christ and change the way we live our lives. You may want to know who the theologian is. You're looking at him. This is a great saying. Talk is cheap, church. It's a walk. We must walk the walk. We always say the proof is in the pudding. It's our walk. So now in verses 5 and 7, Paul abruptly moves into the unpleasant subjects. You heard the passage being read. Sex and greed. Who would expect Paul to come up with that? Immediately, that's what he jumps into. He joins the two subjects with the word, therefore. Showing that there is a close connection between these two unseemingly disjointed themes. Sex and greed. So Paul is saying that our identity, the new identity with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is the basis for a godly life of separation from all sexual immorality and greed. That's what Paul is saying. So as I, I've always told you, when you take a passage of Scripture, it's good to give titles. So that's what I try to do as I go through this passage. So when I look at this passage, I saw four different titles. And very quickly, if you look at it, number one, there's a command that is given. That's the best I can do with my graphics, okay? So I hope you can read that. Paul's is a command that Paul is giving. Paul is asking the saints to do something, every one of us, put to death. Kill it. So I see a command there. And the second thing that we see here is the content or the substance, the subject of the command, what to put to death. Talking about sex and greed. 
The third thing I'm seeing in this passage is the consequences. If you don't put to death, he's talking about the wrath of God. That's the third thing I'm saying. And the fourth thing, Paul doesn't stop there. The fourth thing I'm seeing is that there is some comfort because this is your life of the past. That means it's not present. There is hope. There is comfort. So, in essence, what I'm seeing is I see the command, then I see the content, then I see the consequences of that, and last but not least is the comfort. That's what I'm seeing in this passage. So, what is the command that Paul is telling? So, let's examine that. Therefore, he says, put to death your members which are on, on the earth. Let me stop there. Church, I'm not in a hurry to finish this uh, text today. Might take it. I'm just going to work through that very carefully and slowly so that we get it. It's very important for us. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Paul uses strong language to call out. Paul is not saying, consider your body dead to sin. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, put to death your members on earth. Paul is saying there's a tsunami, there's a killer bee, there's a mosquito. Kill it. Run away from it. The only uh, parallel text that you can find in Romans 8.13, you can make a note of it, look at it later. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what, Paul, so what does Paul mean when he says, put to death the members which are on earth? What is Paul meaning here? So he's using the term, please come along with me carefully, members which are on earth as a figure of speech. It's known as a metonymy. That's the term that is used. It's a figure of speech. It refers to sins which stem from our old nature and are associated with our bodies. Let me give an example so you can understand this. Now, we have heard this saying, don't give me any of your lip. Have you heard that? People say that. Don't give me any of your lip. Now, that does not mean that I'm not, I'm looking, I'm, I don't want your lip. The lip is a matrimony. So basically what we are saying is the words that come forth from our lips is what I don't want. That's what Paul is saying here. Put to death your members on earth, it means kill all sexual sins and all your greed which come from your flesh. That's exactly what Paul is using. This is a radical terminology, church. Paul easily could have said, control your sexual impulses. We would love that. Control it, if possible. Or he would have said, put off this behavior. But instead, he uses very shocking and radical language. He says, kill your parts of that body when it comes to sexual immorality and greed. It's a difficult subject to preach because we are all sinners. We fall into sin very easily. John Piper puts it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's why I gave this title, kill it before it kills you. I just want you to remember always the mosquitoes and the killer bees as we discuss this topic. 
The verb that Paul is using is very strong. It suggests that we are not simply to suppress and control evil acts and attitudes, but we are to wipe them out completely, exterminate the old way of life. Completely. Take it off. The action should be undertaken decisively by every one of us with the sense of urgency, church. So as you look at this verse, it's, it suggests a vigorous, painful act of personal determination by every one of us. Now some of us may think that, you know, we already died with Christ. So we don't need to put ourselves to death. We just need to consider ourselves dead to sin. We, can, we, can, we may tend to think that way. While that is true on one side, but that's not the entire picture Paul is giving here. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is using here a radical terminology. What he says is lay hold of your sinful nature, wrestle it down, and nail it to the cross. Nothing short of a violent death. And also what, Paul's, what it means to us is that very often, even though you nail it on the cross, very often it can come off the cross come alive again, and, and it can resurrect itself, and Paul is saying, nail it back again. That's what Paul is talking about here. You know what? Paul is not the only one who said that. The Lord Jesus himself used radical terminology in context of this lust. You know, I don't have time to go into that if you make a, make a note and look at it later. In Matthew 5, verse 28, Paul is, uh, Jesus is saying this, but I tell you that anyone who looks at the woman with a lustful eye has already committed adultery. You know that very well. And Jesus didn't stop there. So in verse 28, he says, if you look at a woman with a lustful eye, you have committed adultery. Then verse 29, the very next verse, this is what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And again, later on in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. So the question is, church, did Jesus and Paul mean for us to take this literally? That's the question. So do I go to an eye surgeon and ask him to take it off? Do I go to an orthopedic surgeon and say, remove my hand? Absolutely not. That's not what Jesus or Paul is saying. Because cutting off parts of your body does not solve the problem. That is a form of asceticism that we studied, or Gnosticism. We are saying the body, the flesh, is evil. You could cut both your eyes off, but as long as you have a functioning brain you would still have a problem with the lust. I want to tell you a story of two monks. There were two monks from the monastery. They came and they had to go to another village and they had to cross a river. So they came to the end of the, end of, uh, uh, on one shore of the river and then they want to cross. And as they were about to cross, there was a beautiful young girl who came there. And she asked the monks, you know, please help me to cross this river. And they both are monks, and they have never touched or seen, or, you know, interacted with the girls. And, and, and one person just moved away. The other person said, no problem. Because she said, I can't swim. He said, okay, come on, get onto my shoulder. So carried her on the shoulder, and both monks were going. This monk was so upset that he was carrying this woman on his shoulder. So they went to the other side of the lake. 
and this one who was carrying dropped the woman off, and they started walking. The other monk refused to talk to him. He was so angry, so upset. They would have walked for about a mile or so. Then he turned back and looked, I just can't believe you did it. So he asked, so this fellow asked the other fellow, what did what? That being a monk, that you carried this woman. So he stopped and he told him, listen, I dropped her off at the show. You are still carrying her this year. That's so true, church. That's so true. As long as you have a functioning brain, you would still have the problem of lust. Just because you left your worldly thing and spent years in a monastery, it does not mean that you can come out of it. That's the moral of the story here. So the question is, what did Paul and Jesus mean when they say, kill it? They say, get radical in dealing with your sin. Now, in Jesus taught this, all sin begins, please come along very carefully, I'm not in a hurry to go through this. In Mark 7, Jesus says this, all sin begins on the thought level. That's what we studied last Sunday. He says, look at this. And he said, Jesus, what comes out of a man that defiles a man and for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thought. There you get it. Loud and clear from the Lord himself. Adulteries, fornication, and the list goes on. And he says, verse 23, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. In essence, what we see that is no sin is ever committed without first thinking about it. Without first thinking about it. If only you and I can judge the thought, when the temptation pop up in our, into our minds, it would not go any further. So now you know what Paul means by kill it. Kill it, put to death. By tearing out the eye and cutting off the hand, Jesus meant that I must take a radical action to kill on my thought level. That's what Jesus meant. That's what Paul is talking about. And that's exactly what we learned last Sunday. I just want to bring this up slide again, just for you to get a picture of what we learned last Sunday. Simple but profound. When you focus your mind on Christ and not on earthly things, your heart will experience the security and hope you have never known. And that is what changes how we live. So instead of removing our thought lives and looking at Christ, that's how we change. So let's be honest about this, church. It's easy to play games, isn't it? We can look very godly outwardly. But inside, we may be entertaining lustful thoughts that no one else knows about. You know, it's like, it's like this. It's like tolerating cracks beneath a surface in a dam. That's what it is. Nobody sees those cracks, but sooner or later, the dam is going to burst and cause a lot of damage. So remember, nobody ever falls into the sin and sexual immorality without thinking about this for before, for some time. 
So putting to death my early earthly members with regard to immorality means forsaking and confessing any lustful thoughts the moment they occur. That's what it means. Putting to death, that's what it means. I must immediately separate myself from those thoughts and acknowledge them to God as sin. Immediately. But truth be told, church, we may still remember the sensual scenes from movies years later, but we can't remember the scripture verses we memorized last week. That's the nature of most human beings. Sadly, that's the truth because of our sinful nature. So it begs the question, you may ask, Pastor, who should take this radical action? That's neat and dandy to hear Paul saying this, who should take this radical action? I always say this, nothing ever happens unless someone does something, and that someone is you and me, nobody else. This cannot be done by proxy, church. We have to do it. It's only I, me, and myself are responsible for my thought. Paul doesn't say here, listen carefully, let go and let God deliver you. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul doesn't say here, pray for deliverance from this sin. He says, put to death, put it to death. It's a command directed to each Christian. We must take whatever action is necessary, however radical it may be, to kill our sin. That's why Paul in a different passage to the saints in Corinth, he says, flee immorality. It's a war. You don't win by standing and fighting. You win by running in the opposite direction. It's a tsunami. Don't stand there and say, I'm going to face it. I'm going to win it. I just want you to think about this as tsunami. You have only one thing to do, church, to run in the opposite direction. A great biblical example is Joseph. Joseph. Even though it cost him his job and landed him in prison, he had the right strategy. When he left his coat in the hands of Potiphar's wife and ran away. Church, this may be too hard to do. Maybe, but remember, this is not an impossible command to obey. Why? If it is impossible, God would not have told you to do so. So the comforting verse for us, for those of, every one of us attempted in one way or the other, is found in, 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 in Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So in this particular verse, before we look at this verse, I want you to look at the verse before that. It's to all of us, those claim to be strong believers. Verse number 12, I'm not popping it up on the screen, but this is what it says. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's a severe warning to all of us. If you think that you're standing fall, if you think that you can overcome the tsunami, if you think that you can live with the killer bee, 
Paul is saying, be careful that you don't fall. And then he goes on to say, the context of this passage is about avoiding sins. Sin. In essence, Paul says, do not assume that salvation brings us immunity. Don't assume that from these earthly consequences of our behavior. Do not be arrogant and careless thinking that you can overcome on your own. It's a warning, church. So Paul is saying here, overcoming any given temptation is entirely possible. That's what he's saying. It is true for every Christian. If you are a committed, born-again believer, you must have that first the assurance and the confidence that it is possible to overcome temptation. Do not belittle that. Because look at this passage. It says, Paul, first Paul points out that none of us are uniquely tempted by sin. It is common and ordinary. That's what he's seeing in this passage. I cannot say I'm the only one who has been tempted. No, every Tom, Dick, and Harry is tempted. That's what they're saying in this passage. Second, that we are saying that God is still with us. God is faithful. Yeah, you are tempted. You are going through struggles. But God is faithful. He loves us. He's not waiting for us to fall. He's ready to help us. That's what Paul is telling here. And finally, Paul is telling, he has the promise, God will always make a way of escape for us. He'll make a way of escape. So the command is that I must take whatever radical action is needed to kill my sinful sexual impulses and greed. And that's what we studied last Sunday, church. So I'd like to take a moment to walk through the scheme of the devil. How the devil works in our lives to bring from a thought to our end, which is death. Very quickly. And, you know, I just want you, church, please take this counsel seriously. I'm talking not only to you, but also to myself. To combat any battle, whether it's in your professional life or spiritual life, for you to be successful, I'm talking from a, let's take it from a, even a secular point of view, the important thing is to know your enemy more than knowing yourself, because you know yourself. It's important to take time to understand who your enemy is. Then not only you will not be taken by surprise, but you'll be prepared to face it. I always tell my children, when I was working in the secular world, I tell my staff that, be a listener, understand your opponent well. So how does the devil work? in this area of sin in our lives. If you understand this, then you know how to overcome that. So I'm going to bring another passage of Scripture, which is James 1, 14 to 16. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and then when his desires conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. James reveals in this simple uh, instructions, there are four distinct stages of our slope, slippery slopes. Four stages in the process of sin. Allow me to describe these things so you can understand what's going on inside of you, how to control your thought life. The first one that we are seeing 
as you look at this passage of Scripture, is your desire. It's called the desire. That's the first stage in the process of sin. You have the desire for sin lying dormant in your heart. Every one of you. Every one of you have got the desire that's lying dormant in your heart. It's part of your spiritual DNA. It is your desire. Therefore, you must recognize it, own it, take responsibility for it, and not blame anyone else. Notice in the scripture, he says, they're drawn away by his own desires. That says it perfectly. It's not your, it's your own lust, it's your own desire that causes you to sin. You didn't, if you didn't desire it, you wouldn't do it. So no one outside of you is forcing you. The compulsion of sin comes from inside of you. And Jesus said that, and, and James says it here again, not someone else's fault, the desires come from within. So church, remember this. Satan knows what your flesh wants. He knows. He knows what you have fallen prey before. So he chooses the bait that you find attractive. So that's the first thing, the desire. The second thing that we are seeing in this passage is drawn away and enticed. What does that mean? Drawn away is a hunter's term that means to be ensnared in a trap. That's what it means. Enticed is a fisherman's term that means to be lured by bait. So the second stage we are looking at is deception. Is deception. We believe the lies that we tell ourselves in order to give ourselves permission to move further. That's what it is. That is why James says in this passage, do not be deceived. Deception is always part of the process. You know, you know church, please listen carefully. Someone, you know, some of us may list down many lies as we are tempted to sin and giving some permission for us to sin. Some of our excuses may be like this. Only one time. Only this time only. No one will know this. I deserve this. I can stop any time. If God is still blessing me, so it can't be that bad. I can always ask for forgiveness from God. The biggest lie, of course, is that a holy God is not offended, that he is not right there watching the whole disgusting episode in our lives and still providing the way of escape that you are not taking. That is the biggest lie for every one of us. Church temptation always looks good on the outside. That's part of deception. So the first one is the desire. Second one is deception. The third one, when you look at it in the same passage, is that it gives birth to sin, disobedience. That's the that's third step. So when what begins in your mind results in actions, it starts in your imagination, but moves into behavior. Church, remember this. What you flirt with, you will fall for. What you flirt with, you will fall for. The best example that we have is King David. Having spider woman bathing, he desired her. 
But if at that point he had turned his heart towards God and confessed his desire as an offense against the holy God, it would have been all over in a moment. But he didn't do that. That's what you see in him. He further inquired about her. He was told that she was a married woman. Imagine the lies that he had to tell himself at this point to make it okay. He invited her over and took her into his chamber. His evil fantasy that was conceived in his heart gave birth to sin. It always does. Not, not, not only their church, as you look at James, the fourth stage, once the disobedience, it leads us to death. Now look at this verse. It brings forth death. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Death is inevitable. The inevitable death is the result. It was the death for Adam and Eve. It was the death for David. And it is death for us. It is death to our conscience. It is death to our sanctification. It is a death to our relationship with God. Church, every time we die, just a little bit more, eventually if we stay that way, in that course, it will be a spiritual death forever. Spiritual death forever. So even in this particular passage, if you read just one verse before that, James says this, I have not brought it up on the screen. James 1.12, he writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, under testing and temptation. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. He says, if he can, if he, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. If he can persevere under trial, if he can be overcomers, and on that day when we stand in the presence of the Lord, we will receive the crown of life. That's what, Paul, that's what James is talking about here. So life or death, the choice is always ours to make. So let me show you this, this, this slippery slope here. Is the desire leading to deception, from deception to disobedient, and disobedient to death. That's what James is talking about. All right, let's go back to Paul now. So Paul's instruction was that he gave what the command is, kill it. I should take some time to explain that. That's why it took some time. Now let's move on. And the content of the command. What is that he wants you to kill? He wants to kill fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desire and covetousness. So Paul lists sexual sins plus greed. That's what he's, Paul is listing here. Fornication and immorality, they are translated from a Greek word called ponia, it's a broad term for sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Now, this word means this. This includes sex between unmarried partners, adultery, homosexuality, child molestation, and bestiality between, between, uh, sex between man and an animal. That's what this term really means. So since all these things begins in the mind... We must avoid any sort of media that tempts us towards this sin. That's the first one. Second one, what you are seeing there is uncleanness or impurity. Again, it's similar to ponia. It's impurity of our thoughts. And, and what it does, it really defiles us, it taints us. 
Allow me to give you an example. I know that some of us, not myself, but I know people who have dropped their phones in the toilet bowls. But what do you do? You reach out and you take it out, isn't it? You don't flush it down the toilet. If you have an iPhone 10 or 12 or 15, I don't know. You reach out and grab it. I just want you to understand, when you grab it, what do you do? Well, you are freaking out how to clean it, phone. But how about your hand? Do you walk around with that hand? Absolutely not. That's what defiling means, walking around. That's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about uncleanness, impurity. That's what it is. We are walking around without washing our hands. And thirdly, we see here, is a passion and evil desire. They are, they are linked together. That's the inner emotional lure of sexual sin. That's what Paul is talking about here. If you don't control them, Paul says, they will enslave and consume you. And the final word Paul talks about is greed. And he equates greed with idolatry. You know, because greed is the desire for more, isn't it? That's what greed is. So in essence, so that I can fulfill myself without regard for God or for others. The, it's idolatry because I'm putting myself in the place of God. Church, all sexual immorality has greed as its motive. Every sexual immorality. Because it's based on personal gratification. That's why it's greed. It's not on the permanent love and commitment to the other person's good. It's never that way. We are called to kill only, not only our sexual sins, but greed as well. That's what Paul is talking about here. Not only sexual sins, but greed as well. Paul mentions greed and covetousness. But last but not least, it is the evil root from which all previous sins spring. Greed is voracious desire to have more to what has been forbidden. Because this places selfish desire above obedience to God and greed amounts to idolatry. Where God is left out, your greed comes to play. Greed is the root cause of all sin. William Barclay, he wrote, in his commentaries, he, he wrote this. Greed is a sin with a variety, wide variety of ranges. And he said, if it is the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it is a desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it is a desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. So when people sin, it is at this basis they are doing what they desire rather than what God desires. So that, in essence, to worship themselves instead of God, and that is idolatry. So if we had the biblical view that greed is as bad as sexual sin and as sexual immorality, how would your life change? Today, if you understood that greed is as bad as sexual immorality, and we might think that, why are we accumulating so much earthly things? Why do we go after all that would perish one day? Why do we seek after the things of this world? Have you ever heard uh, somebody preaching uh, or disciplining somebody because of greed? There's another theologian, Kent Hughes, he mentioned this, if a man is, I love this, if a man is drunk with wine, 
we kick him out of the church. But if a man is drunk with money, we make him a deacon. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. If he's drunk with money, we kick him out of the church. If he is drunk with money, we make him a deacon. Paul says that greed is equal to idolatry. Greed must be put to death. So now we looked at the content, and the next one he's talking about, if we looked at the command, the content is God's wrath. Look at this, verse number six. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. What does this mean, church? This means that those characterized by these sins will face God's wrath. That's what it means. We don't like to focus on God's wrath in our day. We would love to focus on God's love, not God's wrath. But the Bible, as you look through, it's full of references to God's wrath and His judgment on sin. Jesus spoke frequently about hell and judgment, including the verses we looked earlier about plucking your eye out and cutting your hand and as better alternatives than hell. That's what Jesus was talking about. He called it out a place of outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and a place of torment and agony. Their worms do not die. The fire is not quenched. That's what you see as you go through this wrath of God. You cannot say that you follow Jesus, yet rejecting the teaching about hell. So the Bible connects God's judgment and sexual sin and greed. You know, as you read through the scriptures, you see in the Old Testament, God judged Sodom because of sexual immorality and greed. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, uh, no, no um, homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous shall inherit the kingdom of God. So those verses should scare us, church. If they don't, you may have a distorted view about God's grace. So fear of God's judgment is a legitimate motivator for us to get out of this evil thought. The fact that God has not judged us yet and that evildoers seem to be having a great time does not mean that his judgment is not coming, church. Please take it seriously. God gives us such strong warnings because He loves us. And he doesn't want us to perish, to come to Him, or for us to go to an awful end. The warning is clear here as you look at this. Those whose lives are characterized by sexual immorality and greed, they stand in danger of God's awful wrath. And as I close this, we come to the last verse. It's not only the command we looked at, the content, the consequences, but there is some hope and comfort. Look at verse number seven. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. The hope behind the command is God can deliver those enslaved to lust and greed. We walked, we lived in them. So that these were not occasional sins, but rather former way of life. That's what Paul is saying here. For many of the new believers, this was the former way of life. 
But the good news is we walked and we lived there, the past tense. Even when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he, said, he wrote that such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You have been washed, you have been made new. No matter how enslaved to sexual immorality or greed or any other sin you may be, there is hope. There is hope if you will come to the cross of Jesus Christ. God's wrath and God's love met at the cross. Let me repeat that. God's wrath and God's love met at the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God's judgment on the cross so that God could freely pour out his love on those who put their trust in Christ's shed blood. I don't know how many of you are struggling with these thoughts, evil thoughts. It doesn't have to be just sexual, immoral thoughts. It could be any thoughts, things of the flesh. I want you to know that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. That's what Paul wrote. Believe in Jesus, and you can be assured of God's complete forgiveness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come at this time. I'm going to ask the congregation to rise up as they come. And we are going to sing a beautiful him that we know at the cross, at the cross. It's a beautiful, beautiful song or a hymn. It was there by faith I received my sight. That's what the songwriter is saying. Church, before we sing, I want to tell you something. Listen very carefully. It's a true story, very briefly I'll tell you, in the 19th century. There was a man who was working at a machine. He got his fingers caught between the rollers. The machine be begins to suck his hand, and in another minute his arm, and then his whole body. Everything will be flattened, shapeless, and blood-filled mass. So what did the man do? It's a true story. He grabbed an axe lying nearby with his other arm, and he hacks off his own hand at the wrist. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. But that's the only alternative to avoid a horrible death. It's a gruesome picture. But this illustrates the truth that we are. We can't play around with a little bit of sexual sin or greed. If you are already involved in these sins, or even if you are just secretly entertaining them in your mind, God is telling you what we must do. Cut it off. Put to death. Radically separate yourself from it before it sucks you into destruction. So as we are going to sing this chorus song now, I just want all of you, please, just take a time to examine yourself. Only you know your thoughts. The secret thoughts just ask the Lord to forgive you to cleanse you may this be a day of restoration for every one of us shall we sing this song together with this worship team 
as the leaders.